knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name, my name. Is <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a... A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Damien Manda is the CEO and founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, IAPF. You can find them at iapf.org. Damien is an Australian, he has a massive military background, and he came to the side of conservation because he needed purpose. He wanted to find something that he could apply his skills from a military perspective towards. What he found out was that wildlife conservation is something that was buried in his blood, essentially. And the idea of conservation and how to do it and who to empower and who to engage. He decided to think outside the box. He decided to concentrate on hearts and minds versus biceps and bullets. That sounds cliche, but you'll understand what I mean when you listen to this podcast. An absolutely fascinating insight into an organization that is thinking at monstrous scales for wildlife conservation, habitat conservation, and the preservation of this thing that we love so much, wildlife, for our kids and our grandkids one day. So enjoy. What I love about this podcast is that we get to speak with people all around the world. You know, typical, dare I say, hunting podcast. I don't think we're a typical hunting podcast. Um, tend to like live in a little geographic space of the US and they have the, the typical people that they come on the podcast circuit. Uh, but you are coming to us from the lovely city of Harare, Zimbabwe. Is that correct? Correct, mate. Yeah. Yeah. This is home. Uh, been in Zimbabwe for the last 13 years now. And you sound like a native Zimbabwean as well. <laughs> come on, mate. I'm an Aussie. 
So where are you from originally from Australia? I think we've talked about this, but I, where originally is home? I was born in Melbourne, uh, mostly raised in Sydney. And uh, I try to get back to Australia once a year, but I left Australia 17 years ago. I was with the military uh, three years in Iraq and then uh, a year in South America. And then uh, been in Africa ever since. Most of, most, of, most of that in Zimbabwe, a little bit in South Africa. And of course, our projects are in Southern and East Africa. And once you get to Africa, just something crawled under your skin, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, I read uh, read too much Wilbur Smith growing up. So, uh, oh my gosh, dude! Uh, I read every yeah. single bloody Wilbur Smith book you could possibly, possibly get your hands on. Yeah, so uh, this is um, this is definitely home now. I probably have to classify myself as a first generation Zimbabwean. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I don't know if I told you this, but my whole family is in Sydney. My brother, my my nephews, my mother, my all aunts and uncles—they're all in Sydney. Just getting a getting a bit of um, bit of pedigree in your family tree there, eh? Well, I was just going to say it's the dark side of my family. We don't like to talk about that. You know, the South African you know side is a little stronger than the Australian. <laughs> um, Damien Manda. Welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to who you are? Awesome, Robbie. Yeah, thank you very much, mate. Uh, my name, as you as you said, Damien Manda. I am the founder and the CEO of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Australian born and raised. Uh, left Australia in 2015 uh, after uh, my military career there and then into Iraq. Uh, the beginning of, of what would be three years over there. Left Iraq uh, at the beginning of 2018. Um, pretty, pretty much at the crossroads in my life. Uh, it's been a, the next year, uh, pretty much uh, a lot of drugs and alcohol, trying to figure out the what next in life. Uh, pretty rapid downward spiral. I've done well at that stage in life through residential property investment, through military career, serving with some some very elite units, and then uh, and then I suppose once you leave the military and that mission, uh, that camaraderie, that that unit, that closely knit unit of people around you. And, and then you're out by yourself trying to figure out how to reintegrate back into society. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's, as, 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 uh, as cool as it sounds with a pocket full of cash, it actually probably that, that fueled uh, this, this downward spiral. And, uh, there's not too many jobs for a, for a sniper in the local newspaper when you get back home. And um, for mm-hmm. me, uh, a transition seems to just become a party. And, uh, and what felt like a, a good time in the beginning turned out to be um, a pretty – pretty much uh, rock bottom and I'd heard mm-hmm. about anti-poaching some years before uh, and it sounded like a romantic adventure to come across with the skills I had and, and the financial backing that I'd, I'd, I'd saved uh, to be able to go and explore new adventures, new horizons and I, I came to Africa for what was going to be. Where did you start? Where did you start your anti-poaching stuff? Well, I started, I started touring around southern Africa. So I started in South Africa and basically went clockwise around the, the – uh, around the southern part of the continent uh, and after five countries finished in Zimbabwe where I was finally given uh, an opportunity to start working with a unit. And I, I was coming at this from the wrong way with the wrong mindset. I was running around looking for adventure uh, and, you know, that, that that was a red flag for a lot of people. I just didn't want some sort of vigilante running around uh, out there jeopardising the hard work that so many good people had, had put into, in, in, in many cases, decades' worth of conservation work. Uh, and I didn't understand that at the time. I thought, oh, great, you know, my skills are going to be welcomed with open arms, but it, it's, it's just not 
not the way things are done here. And, you know, I found it the hard way and that was part of the learning curve that I had to go through to understand where my start point was uh, in conservation and that, that became Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, just working mm -hmm. with a small unit that had very little input um, or support from uh, the people that should have been giving it to them uh, and the people mm -hmm. that relied on the work that this anti-poaching unit did uh, to then go and sell their tourism product. And uh, um, just just the basic stuff, just training and, and the right equipment and the right tools, having come from working within a $600 billion a year annual defence budget in Iraq where we had every single tool that we needed to try and get us home safely every day. And we were protecting uh, resources in the ground, to be honest. Um, I don't care what mm -hmm. anyone says. You know, I was there on the ground. I know what it was about. Uh, you know, fighting the arguments of old men, ego. And, uh, and then mm -hmm. we come across and we see these wildlife rangers who are risking their life, spending up to 11 months of the year away from their families and out there on the front lines and, and protecting the heart and lungs of the planet. And that to me, it, it did two things. One, it inspired me. Uh, and the other was that it, it, it made me reflect on who I was. And mm -hmm. it, I started to understand there's more to life than running around looking for the next adventure. And then, of course, in, in parallel with this narrative was the plight of animals and uh, mm -hmm. and their struggle. Uh, I used to be a hunter before Iraq, uh, and after three years over there, I knew what it was like to be hunted, and I, I chose never never to do that again. Uh, and then we see these animals that are just just trying to go about their day uh, in, a, in a world where animals don't want a, a big house, they don't want a fancy car, a suit, uh, they lack ego. Animals just want one thing, they, they want to live, and we as a species, we continually take that away from them. And I made a choice there and then that I, I, I wanted to uh, perhaps be a voice that they lacked in, in, in many ways and to use the skills I had to defend uh, threatened species, uh, species that were racing towards extinction, uh, black, uh, black rhinoceros, elephant, white rhinoceros, uh, and then, of course, the ecosystems they live within. And uh, mm -hmm. it was my choice, and, and we built the organisation around that, found that in uh, October 2019, uh, just as a service provider, uh, have now scaled to have 6.5 million acres under contract across three countries. Amazing. A staff of around 450 people. Uh, we've got another 7 million acres under, uh, under negotiation at the moment uh, in a new country, uh, as well as a, a, an extension onto our Botswana project. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a long evolution over the last 13 years as an organisation, as an individual. And I'm, I'm very comfortable with where we are now. And if all I did for the rest of my life is what we're doing, then I would die a happy man. So you said 2019. Did you mean 2009? 2009, yes. Yeah, sorry, mate. Time so I was about to say, I was like, holy smokes, in three years, you... <laughs> yeah. But even 13 years, could you have imagined it being at that scale? Uh, probably not, hey? Uh, what... It's not just the scale, it's the turns that we took along the way to lead us to where we are now. We start, I, I came from a military background and I fell into the cadence of the, the part of the industry that was most relevant to me. Of course, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. The militarized Absolutely. side of conservation um, was attractive to me. It's, what I, it's a language that I could speak. Uh, we saw armed groups of, of uh, environmental insurgents crossing international borders uh, using heavy caliber uh, rifles and automatic weapons to take out elephants and rhinoceros. Uh, the most effective thing that I could see there was to be the last line of defense for these animals. Uh, 
the good guy with the gun standing between the animal that's trying to go about its daily business and the person that's trying to kill it. So someone across on the other side of the world could put a tusk or a horn on their desk. And uh, that's that's where we where we where we scale from range of training to then take on the security service uh, provision for uh, large areas uh, in some very hostile regions, um, namely mm -hmm. uh, the, the Kruger-Mozambique border mm -hmm. in South Africa, uh, working on the Mozambique side of the border there. We became very successful at what we did. Uh, we helped drive uh, massive downturns in rhino poaching in that area, downturns in elephant poaching in other areas. Ultimately, though, uh, going to bed at night knowing that, that um, on a continent where there's going to be 2 billion people by 2040, it will be the people that decide the future of conservation on this continent, not right. bigger fences and more guns. And that's when we set about to try and do things differently. Uh, there was a number of there was a number of factors that that led to our turning point, and we are, whether as individuals or organisations, we are a product of our past. Uh, and I like to think of it as as personal evolution. Evolution is the the retention of the bits that that do work and the cutting away of the bits mm -hmm. that don't. And mm -hmm. every day in my life, uh, as an individual and as an organisation, we are trying to uh, improvise, adapt, overcome and to be more effective uh, than what we were the previous day. And that all comes with learning and with lessons uh, or mistakes, whatever, whatever way we want to look at them. But uh, we've been willing to make mistakes along the way and we've made some monumental ones. But in, in doing that, we've been able to make some monumental shifts in who we are and what we do as an organisation. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the elephant in the room that I wanted to address right away in terms of the what you've <laughs> Excuse the pun, right? Yeah. Um, someone hearing this, hearing you speak, that is a hunter, yeah. could hear you and say, man, this guy's anti-hunting. This guy doesn't like hunting. This guy doesn't want to be a hunter. He doesn't like hunting, doesn't want hunting around. He was a hunter. He's not a hunter anymore. Yeah. So what is your statement position on on hunting, Damien? I'm a practical guy. I'm not an emotional guy. And I think uh, if you're going to look at the ethics, the thing, I, the thing I would probably dislike from an ethical standpoint more than hunting is the fact that as an international community, we've relied on hunting as the only economic model for so many areas. But we want to sit here and say how important it is to preserve these species and the areas they live. Well, if they're, if they're so important, then, then the global community should just put the money down. Uh, and when we, we see people jumping up and down and say, hey, we, we've got to stop hunting, Okay, fair enough. That's your opinion. But you've got to have an and what. What is next right. in these areas? Uh, and this is a point that I make. Um, people can look at me in any way they want, whether I'm for or against uh, hunting or, or don't have an opinion. Uh, the reality is if hunting is turned off in an area, then the anti-poaching stops, the management stops, the motivation from the community stops. Uh, and that motivation coming from the community may be minor, it may be major. Um, but in many cases, it has been enough to motivate conservation for, for in some cases, decades by a single uh, landholder or operator working in conjunction with that community. And you cannot just turn that off without an alternative. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, so where it has been turned off without an alternative uh, and hunting has failed, and I see hunting as declining across many, many countries in Africa uh, for what I perceive to be uh, three reasons. The first is a reduction in species. So you've got less product to sell, less product to hunt. The second is tougher uh, regulations surrounding the export of certain trophies. 
2017, Correct. the exportation of Zimbabwe ivory to the United States was turned off by the US Fish and Wildlife Service, effectively wiping out more than 52% of the market overnight. Okay, so mm -hmm. you've got, and then you've got a younger generation uh, raised on social media. Uh, I'd say there's less people that want to go out and hunt now. Okay, so you've got, you've got less product, you've got less customers, and you've got tougher regulations in between the two. Then go and throw a couple of different filters over the top. First, you take uh, COVID uh, and a reduction in uh, the ability for people to be able to travel. Okay, now you go and overlay the, the war in Ukraine. And uh, many, well, I can see many entire quotas that have been wiped out because Russians are now not coming over to, to hunt those. So it's a volatile, it's an increasingly volatile market space for those that rely on it as the only economic model. Unlike the hunting industry that has been very successful in preserving mass areas in America, that relies on people traveling locally. Mm -hmm. People coming to Africa relies on a foreigner coming over here in most instances to, to come and do that. And that is being jeopardized. We wanted to look at hunting as an equation to be solved rather than an argument to be had. Uh, and so all of the areas that we have under contract, in some cases, uh, you know, ranging as, as high as the, the areas we're going for now, the new areas, a 90-year lease. Uh, the lowest we have is, 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 is 20 years. Um, the areas we get were vacant. We don't go out and compete against the hunter. Uh, we don't go mm -hmm. out and compete in an area where there is a viable um, commercial income stream into that area okay we want to get the lost causes the ones that are left vacant the ones where the wildlife situation is shit the ones where the communities are encroaching starting to cut down trees and set up uh villages and townships because in conservation the lost causes are the best ones worth fighting for uh, mm -hmm. across africa there's more than twice as much land held under communal or tribal land trust uh, owned by the local community. There's more than twice as much land as what there is in national parks on the continent. Communal or tribal land trust is primarily where hunting has taken place and hunting has been the right. economic model to motivate conservation from those, those communities. Uh, now, as hunting shrinks, we stand to lose uh, hundreds of thousands of square kilometres, square miles, whichever way you want to look at it, across the continent. At a time where civilization has been brought to its knees through a pandemic, uh, we're having increasing talk and evidence. Uh, uh, I'm an evidence-based guy. Uh, evidence around climate change. Uh, the single greatest thing we can do is to protect a self-regulating system on this planet that has evolved over billions of years, and that is nature. Uh, so we mm -hmm. can't afford to lose all these areas that were set aside for hunting uh, or national parks or communal areas, whatever they may be. We can't lose them to, to agriculture. We can't lose them to uh, encroachment or to, to people setting up uh, villages in these areas. We just can't do it. It fragments ecosystems. It causes a reduction in um, biodiversity. Uh, it causes closed populations and genetic pools. Uh, in these areas and, and then we left with these pockets, these isolated pockets and what we do as an organisation is look at scale. How can we preserve nature at scale in the largest possible conservation portfolios we can establish within a single political boundary and that is what we're about today and we do that through working with local Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Again, in some, some cases, uh, in several cases, our partners are with hunting organisations we will get a large reserve where hunting is in existence uh, and we will partition that reserve and, and separate a section that the hunter will retain and we'll take on the majority 
uh, yep. and we will protect that area. The alternative is the hunter with a shrinking income stream into that area will try to make the whole area work and won't have enough money to make it all work. Right. And the overall right. area will continue to deteriorate. So we're looking at a win-win-win situation. The hunter wins, uh, conservation wins in the rest of the area, and the community wins. So, Damien, if hunting is not the answer, philanthropic individuals can't be the answer either then. I'm not saying any one income stream is the answer. Uh, you know, these are, these are huge areas. Uh, and uh, to, to frame the mindset of the average individual that's out there giving a dollar. In 2020 in the United States, there was $449 billion that was given to philanthropy. At the top okay. of that list, 29% of that $449 billion was religion. You come down the list at 14% was education, down further 8% uh, is healthcare, and right down the bottom is all animal causes, all environmental causes, climate change, conservation, uh, domestic animals, local and international. Uh, and that makes up collectively 3% uh, of all the uh, funding that was available philanthropically. So we, we're working in the smallest possible space philanthropically. We, mm -hmm. we understand that conservation is not a conservation issue. It is a social issue. And when we deal with the social problems of the communities that live alongside these areas, uh, we have a conservation outcome. And so much of our budgets are now spent uh, on education, healthcare, water sanitation, local employment, gender equality, and local development. Uh, now, just looking at the market space there of education and healthcare collectively, that's almost eight times the market space uh, of the, the conservation pool that we were traditionally working from. So we have much bigger budgets to work from now because we're playing in a much bigger market space. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like it's a social uh, dilemma, not just at the local level, but social dilemma also from a donor level, right? So you've got multiple facets of social social pieces that you have to consider. So it sounds like it's almost like a shotgun, right? Lots of BBs, like we've always talked about. None, no, There's no silver bullet out there. Um, hunting may have a role. We'll have small BB, philanthropic individuals, a couple more BBs in there. What are the other BBs that you've been thinking about? I know that you've been thinking about them that are in that shotgun shell that are going to be sort of stalwarts maybe in the future foundational blocks mm. for wildlife conservation. I, I think uh, something that is going to surpass uh, philanthropy, uh, tourism, both consumptive and non-consumptive, uh, and basically any other uh, small-scale uh, community projects um, that can be imagined, uh, is going to be uh, the carbon credit space. Uh, and we're already starting to see that in, in some areas, not enough areas, uh, because there's a bottleneck in getting those, those credits to market. And for listeners, a carbon credit is based on, on a ton of carbon that is stored in an area uh, that we're protecting each year. Uh, for example, you know, if you might have a, a, a thousand hectares there and, and each one of those hectares has the ability to store six or seven tons of carbon per year, each one of those tons has a value on it. And that value is determined by um, the decline that was happening in vegetation in that area versus where it is versus where it could be if it's looked after or where it could have been if it's not looked after. And there's a value placed on that. 
Second to carbon credits, we're seeing uh, an increasing number of organisations starting to work towards the validation of a biodiversity credit. What that does mm-hmm. is it puts a value on an animal beyond what it could be shot for, beyond what it could be photographed for, beyond what it, what it could be visited for, or just because it's a nice thing to do to look after it and we think it's the right thing to do. It actually validates what that biodiversity is worth in the current climate we have as a, as a civilization, as a generation where uh, some of the biggest issues that we're facing are, are directly linked to the way we treat nature. And so you will have areas in the farthest reaches corners of the continent where people are never going to get to uh, by plane or by boat or by foot uh, and there will be a value put on those areas just because they're being looked after not because they visited uh, and i think these two market spaces are, are going to significantly outweigh everything else put together but they're not there yet so we still need a, a multitude and we always need will need a multitude of, of income streams but for now now is the most important time for people to be doubling down and investing in the conservation of nature however you do it uh, because unless we hold on to what we have now, there'll be nothing left uh, or not enough left by the time these other market streams come come on. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's, there's a, there's a, there is a bigger picture at play. Biodiversity credits, carbon sequestration credits, hunting, philanthropic, all of those pieces need to come to the table. Mm. And obviously, you know, you know better than I do, but the biodiversity carbon credits tied in with World Bank, IMMF stuff. There's just a there's a there's an untapped potential there that is just gonna require some really out of the box thinking, mm. number one. But I think number two, most importantly, it's gonna require I don't know, Damien, is it just this like threshold that people have to get over and realize that, oh shit, we need to do something. Look, I think we're, we're a species that responds very well when pushed far enough into a corner and, and we are approaching that point um, uh, on a level of global understanding. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'd like to think we, we are capable of amazing things uh, when we pull together and, and, and have a common goal. Um, the conservation industry, uh, both from a, a donor standpoint and uh, an implementation operational standpoint, is a very pointy elbowed space. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I often, I often think the biggest threat we face is is not uh, not poachers. It's it's not um, growing human populations. It's not uh, it's not policy. It's uh, it's actually an industry that um, struggles to work together on so many fronts. And uh, gosh, dang! How dare you say that, Damien Amanda? I know it's it's it's, uh, it's true, you know, and it's it's not just isolated to to, to conservation, particularly when we work in the social development space too. Um, there is a lot of fragmentation. People are fighting for funds, limited funds. They're fighting for projects and they're fighting for public sp- uh, public attention. And mm-hmm. uh, all those create a recipe for people often wanting to work in, in silos, uh, not share data, not share funding, uh, not work together mm-hmm. on joint strategies. Very few uh, problems in history have been solved by a million people trying to do a million different things. And I think mm-hmm. the, um, the resources are actually out there to have a far greater impact. It's the coordination that is lacking. Mm-hmm. No, well said, well said. Let me, I want to touch back on an item that you started with because it wants to lead me into some of the things that you're doing. You, you almost arrived in Africa with this romanticized vision of you toting a gun, walking through the bush, taking care of poachers, essentially, right? Whatever you want to call taking care of poachers means. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's a fair, a fair summary of, of the mindset, uh, 13 years ago. Yeah. There are a lot of people today that's, 
that still think that way. I've actually came across a woman that is uh, touting that she's now, you know, she's this vigilante going into Tanzania or whatnot and yeah. joining an anti-poaching team and carrying yeah. her big gun and into the field and whatnot. Yeah. Um, that's not the case. As you said, that is not the, that's not the vision. The vision is empowering the local communities, empowering the local teams, yeah. giving them training, giving them equipment, giving them weapons, giving yeah. them the things that they need to flourish yeah. and to do a great job. Yeah. You through IAPF and, and give us a little bit of background here to the Ashingas because yeah. you decided to take something, someone, gender that wasn't typically in the role of mm. an anti-poaching unit. And almost thrust it into the limelight because you created full female anti-poaching units. Um, talk through that for me because a lot of people one have never heard of the Ashingas, so let's make yeah. sure we get context here. Yeah. But I'd love to know the history of like where would the brain fart come from that was like, wow, this could actually work. Yeah. So I mean, just to just to, to frame my, you know my background having come from the ultimate boys club of special operations and and, of course, yeah. and built a career across three continents in the training and deployment of, of men for frontline uh, operations i'd never worked with women uh never been part of a unit that that, that had women uh in an operational role so um the actual contemplation of of doing this was a was a, a huge arc of transformation um, first in mindset and then in then in practice uh, and it was based on uh, the mistakes that we were making in Mozambique. Yes, we were successful in preserving rhino, but we were having increasing, uh, increasingly antagonistic relationships with some cases, thousands, tens of thousands of people that lived in communities right alongside the area that we were trying to protect. And so we were looking at ways to turn that around. There was a massive fragmentation between conservation and communities, and we were willing to try anything. And we did a lot of research into trying to understand other industries and the progress they'd made by incorporating uh, women more into management, uh, in, into boards, uh, into operational roles. And we, we simply set out with an idea uh, to start a, an all-female anti-poaching unit and to see where it led. And I, I can say now uh, the, the benefits far outweigh anything uh, that would, could be considered a, a negative or maybe... Um, Know, lacking in, in, you know, some people may see a, a, a certain lacking in capacity of uh, whether it be strength or speed. Um, right, there's right. something far more important than biceps and bullets uh, in 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 having a long term relationship with the community. There's very few examples in history of a foreign force coming in and occupying a country or a region and having a long term good relationship with the local community. And we found. The ability to be able to do that with women at, in the front roles of, of law enforcement and conservation. Uh, and, and I'll say a small group of women achieve what very few armies or police forces in history have done. They won the hearts and minds uh, of a local community. And that led us to have a conservation outcome. And look on. So instead of bullets and biceps, it's hearts and minds, essentially. It's hearts and minds sort of prongs to the approach of conservation, right? This idea yeah. that as a protectionist ide ideology, which is we're yeah. going to keep everyone out, push everyone out, keep everyone out versus this, the opposite side of the coin, which is this engagement, coordination, pulling them in, investment in what you're doing. And yeah. it sounds like that was that was the key. It, it's, I mean, it's changed a few things. 
uh, namely the economics. Uh, previously, we'd employed males from hundreds of miles away to come in and defend these areas. It could be classified as a foreign force working against the local population. We did that to avoid corruption. Uh, if Denmark ranks number one as the least corrupt country in the world, Zimbabwe ranks 157 out of 180 countries on the Global Corruption Index. Uh, we haven't had a single incidence of corruption with the women. Okay, not a single incidence. Okay, so as we have scaled, the majority, 95% of our employees come from within 14 miles of the boundary of the area we protect. It turns the largest line item in our in our annual budgets, which is salaries for rangers, it turns that from being something that was dispersed around the country uh, into the hands of the men that we used to employ from hundreds of miles away, it turns that into a direct investment at community level, at household level, uh, into the hands of women. Uh, now, at face value, we were able to take an aggregate of hunting uh, uh, on the three years prior to it, it, it failing versus the first couple of years uh, um, of this project. And we were able to work out on paper, we were putting the same amount into the local community every 34 days as what trophy hunting was doing per annum. That's at face value. The bottom line triple gears as a woman spends 80 to 90% of a, a salary on family and local community versus a male that spends 30 to 40%. So we, we, we had, in areas where hunting was failing or had failed, we had a viable economic alternative that only worked with women at the centre of the strategy. And that's what we did. We centralised our conservation strategy around women's empowerment, gave us the greatest traction in community development. Conservation became the byproduct. Secondly, women naturally de-escalate tension uh, in, in confront, confront, potentially confrontational situations. That for us is great at, at building hearts and minds uh, and uh, having far less paperwork to do if there's there is a confrontation, <laughs> women women are, are de-escalating situations, and out of the more than three hundred arrests that they've made, there's only been shots fired once. Uh, now, what that does for us, de-escalation in a law enforcement sense means demilitarisation. So we don't have helicopters and airplanes and drones and military grade hardware anymore. We have these relationships driven by the women mm -hmm. uh, from the communities they were they were raised in the communities they're raising their own families in. Uh, we cut our core operational budgets by two thirds because we weren't spending it on military grade hardware. We were spending it on women who were having these, these, these this connection with the with the community. Uh, that freed up all this money to then go and reinvest back into healthcare, water, sanitation, education, local development. Uh, and it just seems every dollar we spend in the community is one or two dollars less we have to spend on law enforcement. So in figuring this out, is now this is the core strategy moving forward in every area? You you have the same model and you bring in the model and, and just, I guess, tweak it to the area? I'd say it's a significantly sharp and effective tool in the box. It's not everything. We have a an extensive information network and a special investigations network that works hand-in-hand hand, uh, with our ground operations. Uh, and in, in now, So talk a little bit about that because a lot of people mm -hmm. immediately assume – IAPF, anti-poaching, all these guys are doing is really equipping people to go out, protect wildlife, and now, as, as you've just articulated, engage community, in, you know, talk to communities, engage communities and whatnot. But and that's just one, you know, one leg of the stool, yeah. right? There's probably multiple legs of a stool that you guys are engaged in. Exactly. Um, I mean, you take the social side, uh, you take the law enforcement side, you then add research. Habitat management, which is dealing with everything from wildlife 
to invasive species. We've got human wildlife conflict, problem animal control, uh, and then investigations around the world in law enforcement around general rule of thumb is around 3% of crimes are solved by catching someone in the act. The other 97% are solved through investigations. Okay, now we, we, we were wandering around areas the size of small countries. Okay, you can mm-hmm. do that all day mm-hmm. hoping to bump into something or you can go exactly to where the problem is. Of course, there is, there's, there's a number of reasons why we need to be out patrolling. Uh, it might be injured wildlife, getting wildlife population numbers, checking for fire, speaking with communities, um, monitoring various species, um, checking water levels in, in dams, uh, uh, and of course, looking for incursions, uh, whether they be poachers, camps or footprints. Um, so it's not just about looking for looking for people to catch. Uh, but the other side of that, uh, the place that allows us to put a limited amount of resources in the most effective um, places is our investigations work. Investigations is based on getting good information and getting good information is based on a community that's willing to give it. Uh, and this all comes back to uh, the de-escalation, demilitarization and investment in community programs that fuels the investigation work that we do. So you see this starts to become a cycle here. Mm-hmm. And one, one, one loop feeding into the other uh, that creates this model that gives us uh, economy and scale uh, and, and, in fact, creates the scalability of what we are doing. Where we had one reserve of 90,000 acres in Zimbabwe uh, and a small group of women protecting that area to now having 11 reserves that we patrol and protect uh, and a portfolio of 1.3 million acres and growing. Uh, we, we have a model that's scalable and when we're looking at trying to solve some of the biggest world problems we have, we need to protect nature at scale and that is what makes this program uh, so attractive. Um, having just come mm-hmm. from the US, uh, a recent trip there, we raised $52 million. $52 that million. Is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and that is because we have something that is looking beyond species. It's looking beyond parks and it's looking beyond countries. It's looking at a nation, uh, a continent-wide strategy to address uh, conservation at the absolute largest scale possible in each of these countries that we go to. No, it's 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 dreaming big and 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 putting big fingerprints on the landscape, right? It's what you it's what you dare I say, it's what you dreamt of when you started IAPF in 2009. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I've got to say, since we started this program and started thinking big, uh, things have become big. Uh, we went from a $1 million a year organization to three, then to nine. This year we'll clear um, well over $20 million uh, with that $50 million um, investment that we've got running over a number of years, uh, but also being able to use to, to scale up the organization and invest in development. Uh, even going through a rebrand this year because yeah, we may, may be called the IAPF International Anti-Poaching Foundation. The reality is we've come a long way from where we started. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a quite a lot of things that are, that are taking place at the moment. Um, not, none more pertinent than uh, the actual operational challenge of scaling up uh, to protect such a, such a massive portfolio. Already uh, one of the largest portfolios in, 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 in Southern Africa. Uh, uh, with an ambition to have 30 million acres under contract by the end of the decade, uh, 30 million acres—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a significant amount of of land. Uh, it is—it's it, equivalent to the total amount of deforestation that takes place across the planet every year. So to have that under contract and protected for the foreseeable future, it's—it's—it's—it uh, uh, it's, would be a phenomenal goal. 
with it, mm-hmm. with where we are at the moment, once we get our two new uh, land leases, uh, I won't say where they were because they're in negotiation at the moment, but collectively uh, the carbon that's, that's sequestered in those in that portfolio is equivalent to switching off new york city for 190 days each year that's how much carbon will be preserved in these areas Hmm. so knowing that you're a numbers guy and you've just come off a tour in america that uh, was full of probably marketing uh numbers 30 million acres is equivalent to what in, in the united states uh, have you figured that out, like what states got put together to make up 30 million acres? I, I have. It's written down somewhere. Where is it? Um, it's in that back I corner think, of your I brain. Think, I think it's about, it's about half the size of Costa Rica, uh, if, I, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Um, the last thing I want to say is maybe, obviously, you don't need a plug. You guys have you know, we're a small little podcast, 52 million, you just got raised. But a lot of people are going to be like, man, I see a bunch of anti-poaching organizations everywhere. Yeah. Like there's, there's, It's like a dime a dozen. It's almost like the animal rights guys. There's a dime a dozen of animal rights guys. There's, um, you know, what are, are people, I don't know, not wasting their money is it is you know what are your thoughts there? And obviously, you want to be politically correct, but also yeah. want to hear the truth. There's a there's a bunch of amazing organisations out there doing great work, and there's also some dodgy ones. There's also ones that may not be great, but are trying to get it right. Uh, and I can say that was us in the beginning. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's uh, I think um, the isolation that can occur both with industry and and from from governments uh, with people that are trying to get up off the ground. Uh, can be a huge deterrent and a lot of people just walk away you know luckily i'm a stubborn bastard uh and decided to stick it out and not only stick it out but being forced so much into a corner um by industry and and, and by some of the governments that we had to work with that we were forced to look at as i said the lost causes and in doing mm-hmm. that we, we found our place we found our place at scale and um now, in regards to anti-poaching versus whatever other sort of development or conservation work we want to do, I can say from from our uh, understanding and what we've learned is that it, it's, it's that when a number of factors work together that you have the the, the best outcomes. Uh, and if you were to look at healthcare or education as, as an example, the thing that that makes our work in those areas secure is that our work is secured in long-term land leases. We're not just coming in and trying to do some work in a school or a clinic here. We actually have a long-term lease with the communities, which allows us to do projects. It also allows us to make mistakes uh, because they can, there's mm-hmm. so much positive um, uh, momentum with all the other work that we're doing, the work we understand that we can go on, we can go and trial some things. We just got a hemp license and, and trial a couple of hectares uh, or a number of acres of, of hemp to try and see how that would work as, a, as an alternate um, uh, crop to tobacco, which is a very destructive crop in the areas that we work in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't work, you know, but we know mm-hmm. now it didn't work. We know why it didn't work, and we, we're not going to put the investment up to, mm-hmm. to proof that concept. Um, but we had the positive momentum in that area and all the other streams that we were doing to be able to go out and take these risks and, and, and trial these, these programs. Uh, uh, but from any, a donor investment also, you're not going to it, – it helps you raise money when you say, look, we're going to be in this area for 20 years. Absolutely. We're not in it for five, and we have to compete in five more years yeah. to see if we get the area again. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And the community then, they, I mean, we, we do have to do some unsavory stuff going out and arresting people. It's the least fun part of the job. Uh, but the fact that we're doing all this other stuff in the communities, it gives us, it gives us the, the, the standing to be able to go out and say, listen, guys, you know, we, we, we're putting 200 kids through uh, scholarship programs in this area. We've rebuilt that school. Uh, we've put these water pumps in here. We need you to stop poaching or at least um, uh, play as most significant role as possible from a traditional leadership level uh, in these communities and try and stop it. Because in actual fact, the funding that's coming in here is dependent on wildlife uh, and vegetation um, populations uh, not only being maintained but, but improving over time. Damien, one question I had to find to sort of wrap this up, um, and I'll use one of the rhetorics that hunters use for conservation, and, and yeah. I want to understand how you guys handle it. One of the things that happens in a, in a hunting concession is that the meat that is, comes from the animals themselves gets given to the communities as a protein source. That way they don't have to poach, right? They, they then have this, this protein coming mm -hmm. in. How does something like that get handled through your concessions? Do they get given a quota? You know, how does that work? Hey, look, I mean, whether it's whether it's a ton of meat or a hundred tons of meat, um, it's it's never enough uh, in terms of of what is desired. Uh, you know, and if there's ever surplus, then that's that that becomes an income stream. Uh, you know, when it comes to, I mean, what people do from an agricultural standpoint outside of the reserve is up to them. Uh, we will allow controlled grazing uh, accompanied by our rangers or scouts inside the reserve, inside the first two kilometres, so just, just over a mile in, uh, uh, so people can come and um, both graze and water their, their, their livestock uh, without encroaching too far into the protected area. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But that's about the extent of, of our involvement uh, with agriculture uh, in the communities and the pro the. The, the tools we have in our toolbox in regards to community projects just don't don't incorporate that just because we, we choose to be really good at a few things and how those fit into the strategic plan that are developed by the communities themselves in terms of what they need. Uh, and then on the inside of the reserve, uh, the, as I said, the, the areas we take over um, in partnership with local communities, um, they, they, they've been all but shot out um, or hunted out um, through, right. through poaching. Um, so there's a there's a sort of um, there's a very long runway uh, in getting these areas up to a position where we would even be considering to offtake the wildlife to to feed the communities uh, and the communities working with us see the long term picture in what we're doing and and understand that uh, um, both carbon credits hopefully a biodiversity credit and at some point some some conservation programs uh, sorry um, philanthropic programs coupled with all the work that we're doing uh, at a social level. Um, will, will perhaps exceed uh, their desire for uh, a small amount of offtake um, of meat. Do you have have you have you got any concessions where livestock is impossible because of tsetse fly? And how does that play into the whole? And for those that are listening, tsetse fly gives a sort of a sleeping sickness to, to to cattle and livestock, and they you know communities can't have that protein source if that was going to rely on it, i.e. The only protein source available to them would be wild game yeah. uh, from animals coming out the field. Uh, in our, I mean, in some of our areas in Zimbabwe, there are setsi fly, um, but it's 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 not prohibitive uh, for people having um, for having livestock populations. And the, the Zimbabwean government uh, is uh, the setsi fly control unit the department. There is mm -hmm. very proactive mm -hmm. um, in trying to keep those numbers down. Awesome, awesome. Well, Damien, if people want to learn more about IAPF, um, 
Where can they find you? What can uh, they do? IAPF.org. Um, if you Google anti-poaching, we should pop up there somewhere on, on your Google homepage. Um, you know, people often ask, you know, what, what can we do? Uh, and, I'll, you know, my, my answer to that is it's not just about looking at, at any one organization, but it's about looking at ourselves and how we lead our lives and the changes that we can make. Uh, small changes in our lives can mean big changes for others. And, and uh, aside from donating, uh, I think uh, the most effective thing we can do is, is analyze the way we live. And, and, and as I said, try and evolve over time, make changes that are, that are going to be impactful to future generations, I'm sure. Each one of us has a, has a either has children or or family members that have children. They're going to have to inherit the mess that we have left for them. We we are not the main act. Humans are not the main act. We're one of millions of species that has come and will go uh, on this planet. Uh, and the sooner we realise we're part of a much more intricate system that doesn't uh, exist with humans at the top of the food chain, we we're actually reliant on nature. Uh, and until we look after nature and treat it as, as what it is, the most important single thing we have on this planet uh, for our own future for survival, uh, until we can start to do that, then perhaps we're the endangered ones. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well said, my man. Well said as Thank someone you, that, is, that is used to raising money. And um, it's very, very good and inspiring, my man. So... Um, if you need anything from us, as I've, I've said via text message, we're, we're here. Yes, we, you know, we, we'd like to convey the truth about hunting, but the truth about hunting is also that sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah, it's like same, so, same with conservation, man. Sometimes it doesn't work. Same with community projects. Sometimes they don't work. Sometimes they, they, they do work. You know, and it's, it's, as I said, there's no silver bullet here. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Thanks, Damien. Robbie, thank you very much, mate. Thank you to the listeners. Uh, have a great, um, a great weekend, mate. Cheers. Yes, sir. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Oh, that's awesome. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.